since today we're continuing our series through the book of Habakkuk. There's a sense in which this is not an Easter sermon because we did not go off track to find a text to preach. There's a sense in which this is an Easter sermon because the central we believe the proclamation of the risen Christ is at the center of every Bible passage. So today we're going to hear Christ proclaimed as king. Uh, we, we've been in Habakkuk for a little bit over a month. We have two more sermons on it, and then we'll make our way into the gospel of Mark. Here is the word of the Lord for us today, Habakkuk 3, verses 1 through 16. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigionoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, receive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his glory. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He shook, he looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place, and the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You thrashed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the, surgi the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of troubles to come upon the people who invade us. 
fourscore and six years have I been his servant, and he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp, bishop of Smyrna, an early church father who was a direct disciple of the apostle John. He lived in the late first century and into the second century. After living a life of faithfulness before Christ for decades, Polycarp was ordered to offer incense to the Roman emperor. Because of his Christian conviction, he refused. Polycarp was therefore sentenced to be burned at the stake. Polycarp was given a chance to recant. But his response was, Four score and sixty years have I been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? One simple word, and his life would be spared. His fate would be changed. Revoco. I recant. Yet, no such word ever came out of his mouth. What produces such boldness? What can possibly lead a man to choose such horrendous death? Where does this kind of confidence come from? Friends, this is faith. Not just any kind of faith. Not faith in faith. Not faith in destiny. But faith in a faithful God. Faith in a God who has proven himself faithful in the past. Faith in a God who promises to be faithful in the future. So this is my main thought for you today, the thought that is going to gu guide our time to get together. God's past faithfulness is the fuel for the believer's faith. God's past faithfulness is the fuel for the believer's faith. This message is a message for those who are weak in their faith. That would be you and I. This message is a message that points us not to our greatness, but to the greatness of him who gave himself up for us. Just as a brief review, as we did last week, the book of Habakkuk is, a, is unique. It is a prophetic book, but this book is not a prophecy to the people. Instead, this book is a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk cries out to God because he sees the wickedness of the people of Israel. And Habakkuk pleads with God, Please, judge Israel. God responds by saying that he would indeed 
judge Israel. He would bring upon them the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, who were a feared, powerful, violent people. Habakkuk, in shock and surprise, responds, Lord, how can you judge your people with a people who is more wicked than us? And God said, trust me. Though the judgment is coming, there is hope. And here's the hope. Here's the hope for the people of Israel. Here's the hope for you today. The righteous shall live by faith. The Chaldeans will judge Israel, but I will judge the Chaldeans. And this is one of the great paradigms of the Bible. Through judgments, God saves his people. There is salvation in the midst of judgments. So today we're going to see Habakkuk's response to God's promise of judgments. In the past two weeks, we've seen God's oracles, five woes of judgments towards the Chaldeans. And this today is Habakkuk's response. Habakkuk's plea in wrath, remember mercy. In verse 1, by the way, this message, you will be very helped if the text is right in front of you. That's why we have uh, outlines. And if anyone needs an outline, Benji will get you an outline if you raise your hand. Um, and this is why the text is in front of you in the back. That you will be very helped if you look at the text. My, my goal here is to show you what God is saying, not to tell you what I want to say. So in verse 1, we see Habakkuk praying unto God. It's a prayer in the form of a psalm. Perhaps no other passage in Scripture resembles a psalm more than Habakkuk 3. It is believed that Habakkuk was a Levite in the temple. So for him to express his prayer in psalms, which is a music style, would not be surprising or unexpected. So how do we know this is a psalm? So still in verse 1, we read this prayer is according to a shigionoth. Now that's a word that we don't see often. As a matter of fact, it only appears in the Bible twice. Shigionoth is a musical genre. And the term is also found in Psalm 7. Throughout the chapter, we also see the word selah three times. Again, this word only occurs here and in the book of Psalms. The meaning of the word selah is not very clear, but it appears to be a time for an instrumental break where one ponders on what's being said. Finally, the last line of this chapter reads to the choir master with stringed instruments. Again, this instruction is common in the book of Psalms. Habakkuk prays 
a psalm. Psalms are filled with honesty and emotions. Sometimes our prayers are not like that, are they? Sometimes our prayers are lukewarm. We begin a prayer when we go to bed and a man is uttered when we wake up. Sometimes we slumber through prayers. But do you know how you can improve your prayer life? Open up the book of Psalms and pray the Psalms. So the Psalms lead us to pray to a God, to our God, but not just superficially, but from the inner parts of our being. And what is the content of this prayer? This is a prayer of revival. In verse 2, he recalls the works of the Lord. He recalls what he had heard of God, and he responds in fear. Not a fear that drives him away from God, but a fear that drives him to seek God. He cries out, Revive us, O Lord. Friends, the knowledge of God is what brings about revival. Throughout the history of the church, many have tried to manipulate revival. Many have tried to emotionalize the church. Many have tried to use worldly schemes so that people would respond with revival. But that's not revival. That's revivalism. Revival has always come in the church followed by the faithful preaching of God's word. It, it is the proclamation of God, His Word, His work in the person of Christ, the work of His Spirit in regeneration that brings about revival. Revival is not about emotions primarily, but revival is about transformation. And we're only transformed when we know God. We all need revival. Our souls stand to apathy our morals are often inclined towards disobedience. Our faith is weak. Perhaps if you walk, you've walked into this building today because it's Easter and you are hoping for some sort of spiritual revival. You grew up at church, but your church attendance has waned. The Christian values you once held are muted in your life, you have no desire to read the Word of God. You don't pray, but you thought, perhaps if I just go, I'll experience revival. Perhaps you're not even sure you can really consider yourself a Christian anymore. What do you do? What should you do? Well, much of this sermon is about answering that question. But Habakkuk would tell you, recall the faithfulness of God. Remember His goodness. Much of Christianity is about 
remembering God. Revival is not produced from within. Revival is produced by God. You need him. You need to hear his word proclaimed. You need to hear his word explained and applied to your soul. Revival is not going to come to your life by simply getting up a little bit earlier on Sunday morning and going to church. You need God. You need him to grab a hold of your heart. You need him to transform your desires. You need, to transform, you need him to transform your wants. You need him to shape your life. Your apathy can only be won from the outside, from the word of God. So throw yourself into the word of God. Hear the proclamation of God. And you find life. Knowledge of God is what produces revival. But one of the problems most evangelicals face today is a deeply ingrained biblical illiteracy. American evangelicalism is largely biblically ignorant. A superficial view of who God is is often proclaimed from the pulpits. The opposition of our culture to our values don't concern me much at all. That's not new. That has been true. That has been the true experience of the church from its inception. What concerns me is the biblical ignorance that plagues many churches around us. They preach a God who is much like Santa Claus, and it is just there. Hoping you choose him. Heartbroken because people are mean. Willing to overlook every sin because the statement, God is love, is proclaimed without its proper context and background, and it is not balanced against God's justice and wrath and anger. But Habakkuk does not have such a skewed view of God. He says, still in verse 2, in wrath, remember mercy. For Habakkuk, the wrath of God is assumed. For our culture, it is rejected. But in light of his wrath, Habakkuk pleads for mercy. Notice that Habakkuk doesn't say, Lord, deter your wrath, withhold your wrath. No, he knows that God's wrath is pending. Instead, he says, in your wrath, Remember mercy. Why? Because Habakkuk knew that the wrath of God was the only thing that would eventually deliver Israel from the Babylonians. Habakkuk knew that Israel too was deserving of God's wrath. So he says, in your wrath, remember to have mercy Words 
kill people. God's salvation never comes apart from God's judgment. So let us see how this salvation and judgment play together in our passage today. So Habakkuk, please, right? God, Lord, remember mercy. In your wrath, remember mercy. And God responds to Habakkuk. I am the God who comes for his people. I am the God who comes for his people. Now, these verses that we're going to look at now, verses uh, 3 through 16, can be hard to interpret. Why? Because they are highly poetic. And, and poetic language often uses figures of speech, and we are going to need to kind of figure them out. Often we're going to see references to Old Testament stories. And we're going to see a, a device here that, that is very common in the Old Testament, uh, but we need to be aware of. We're going to see theophanies. These are physical representations of God. But I think if you, if you stay with me, you're going to see that the deep study of Scripture causes us to see God in greater glory. So, so we're going to have to do, we're going to have to do mind work today. But, but I think we'll pay a good price. So in verse 3, Habakkuk says, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. These are references to places where God gave the law to Israel. The same places are referred to in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 3, 2 through 5. And, and I think if you want to study this more deeply, you should go home and read Deuteronomy sorry, 33, 2 through 5. We don't have time to go there today. But there, Mount Sinai is mentioned explicitly. So what is Habakkuk doing mentioning these places, Mount Paran, and the land of Taman, Habakkuk is evoking memories of the Exodus. H Habakkuk is remembering God's mercy in light of his judgment. God's great delivery story of his people. He utterly judged Egypt and he saved his people. The Exodus is the perfect example of God remembering mercy in the midst of his wrath. Mercy for God's people, wrath for God's enemies. As the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, in Exodus 2.24 we read, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant. His promise, his relationship with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Friends, we serve a God who remembers his promises. We serve a God who has a great track record of faithfulness and victory. You know, just a, a little over a week ago, the, the deacons and I were going over the membership role at our church, we, we seek to care for the souls of our members well. And each member has a number uh, that, that they are assigned when, when they become members of our church. And the numbers have to do with 
uh, when they became members. So the older members have very low numbers. The more recent members, like myself, are north of uh, 4,000. And uh, we have, we've had over 4,000 members in this church over the years. What a blessing. And we were just looking and thinking, some of these brothers and sisters have been faithful for so long. And because of their faithfulness, we are here today. Because of these members that have been here for 40, 50, 60 years, we can be here today. We didn't build this with our own hands. They did. And, and we praise the Lord and we thank the Lord for the faithfulness of many. For looking at so many of those low numbers that are assigned to members. Friends, friends, this is encouraging for us as a church. It's encouraging for us to pursue greater faithfulness. Their faithfulness encourages our faithfulness. When we behold faithfulness, we also practice faithfulness. So what is faithfulness? How do we motivate faithfulness in our hearts? We look at the faithfulness of God. We look at Him and we remember from the very beginning He has been a faithful God. Therefore, if I am a child of God, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, I too must be faithful. I too must be faithful. In verse 4, we see more about the faithfulness of God at Sinai. God gave His law to Moses. And lightning and fire were seen upon the mountain. Habakkuk here describes God's brightness. Rays flashed from his hands. God veiled his power just as Moses had to veil his face after he saw the glory of God. In verse 5, we see more Exodus language. God used pestilence and plague. To judge Egypt and, bring, and he brought Pharaoh to his knees and in doing so he freed his people. Verse 6, we see the power of God over all of creation. He knows the measurements of the earth. He shakes the nations. God scatters the mountains. He lowers them. Psalm 90 verse 2, before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world's from beginning to the end, you are God. Mountains are a picture of stability. Now, we're from Florida, right? So we don't have mountains. I, if you see a mountain in Florida, beware. Uh, that's a dumping site, right? So I don't know if you know about Mount Trashmore down in Broward County where I moved here from. Right, so if you're driving north in I-95, you see this mountain, and it looks pretty good. But as you approach it, you realize you have to hit that button in your AC, right, to recycle the air, right? You need to roll up your windows, and you need to hold your breath. You will make it through Mount Trashmore. Now, Mount Trashmore has been there since 1960. It, it doesn't have a lot of longevity. It's been around for just a little bit, and it's there. And uh, the taxpayers in Broward are trying to destroy Mount Trashmore. And they have tried for decades to do that. But these are not the mountains 
that God is comparing himself to or saying that he's greater than. Have you ever driven into Tennessee and away in the distance seeing the Smoky Mountains? You know, I've done the drive South Florida to Louisville more than a dozen times. And every time I drive into Tennessee, I look forward to that sight. And never once in my mind have I thought, oh, I wonder if the Smoky Mountains are there. No, they're there. And, and, and they're going to remain there. And they're going to stay there. Because mountains are a picture of stability. And God is saying, even the mountains were put in place. I was there all along. God is more stable than mountains. What a great message for a people who is about to be judged. God is stable in times of instability. Run to him. In verse 7, Habakkuk sees the tribes of Cushion in affliction and Midian tremble. These are tribes that lived close to the area of Taman. They would be the first ones to see God coming for the rescue of his people. Friends, at times you may think God is not coming for your rescue. You may think that God has forgotten you, but nothing could be further from the truth. If you are in covenant with God, God will never forget you. Habakkuk cried out for justice because he thought God was idle, but God, but God told him the vision awaits its appropriate time. It seems slow, but wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God is never late. God is always on time. And this is what God wants you to know today. Friend, if you belong to God, your circumstances do not matter much. It is your relationship with Him that matters. His mercy is on you. It will not delay. It is on you right now. God is coming to deliver you from your enemies. And this is good news. Now, perhaps you're saying, Pastor Lucas, wait. I'm a very peaceful person. Who are my enemies? I don't think I have enemies. Well, you do. You see your enemy every day. You look at your worst enemy every morning when you wake up and see your reflection in the mirror. We're born with a sinful nature. And this nature dooms us to eternal condemnation. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Galatians 5, 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Friends, before holy God, we are not holy. Before holy God, we are not just. 
we are not neutral before God. We are actually the enemies of God. But the good news is that when we come to God in faith and repentance, he begins a work of delivering us from ourselves. And he's bringing that work to completion right now if you're trusting in Jesus Christ. If we are not saved from ourselves, we are worthy of God's wrath and judgment. But when God delivers us from our worst enemies, ourselves, we experience the salvation of God. How do you receive that? Habakkuk tells us, the righteous shall live by his faith. We believe God and his promises, and that is accounted to us as righteousness. But God goes on in his response. He says, I am the God who comes for his people. But not only that, God also says, I am the God who conquers for his people. Now, in this new section, the language, the language changes a bit. So verses 3 to 7 depicts God as a glorious king. Now, verses 8 through 15 depict God as a powerful warrior. Th these pictures work together. God, the glorious king, is able to defend his people. Now, God, the powerful warrior, is willing to defend his people. Let's look at this powerful warrior. In verse 8, God's wrath is poured out against rivers and seas. Again, evoking God's liberation of his people through the parting of the Red Sea. Pharaoh's horses and chariots were destroyed, but God rides on his horses and chariots victoriously. In verses 9 and 10, God unsheathes his bow and splits the, splits the earth with rivers. Mountains shrink and the waters overwhelm the earth. This is a picture of a great flood. This is a picture of Noah's flood. Even beyond God's faithfulness in the time of Moses, God is pointing us to his faithfulness in the time of Noah, a great judgment over all the earth that would deliver some who believe in God. Habakkuk is here skillfully moving through the great biblical narratives to show that God has displayed his wrath to the unjust from the very beginning, but also show that God has displayed his mercy towards those who believe in him from the very beginning. So just as the earth was judged by God in the days of Noah, the enemies of God's people, the Chaldeans, must tremble because the God of judgment is not idle. He's a consuming fire ready to destroy those who oppose him. And yet in his great wrath, God showed mercy to the man of faith. Noah. In verse 11, the focus changes again from Noah to Joshua. Habakkuk says that the sun and the moon stood still in their place as the Lord 
attack his enemies. In Joshua 10, as Joshua battles at Gibeah against five other kings, the Lord rained down stones from heaven, debilitating the enemies of Joshua. And as Joshua battles on, he finds success, but he is running out of time. So he asks the Lord to cause the sun and the moon to stand still so he could commit all his enemies to full destruction before the day ended. And God grants his request. Verses 12 through 15, Habakkuk continues the narrative of salvation through judgment. He would create, God would create confusion and the enemies, his enemies would turn their own arrows against themselves. We're told that God saves his people and he saves his anointed one. This is anticipation for the great Messiah that would come to deliver Israel from all their troubles. In Genesis 3.15, we're told that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The sovereignty of Pharaoh was symbolized by a serpent. And yet God, through his representative Moses, crushed the head of the serpent. And yet, though Moses, Noah, Joshua, and so many others delivered the people of God from great trouble over and over again, none of them ultimately delivered the people from the trouble that lurked within. Moses delivers the law to the people, and the people worship the golden calf. Noah steps out of the ark and finds himself drunk and naked. Joshua delivers the people, and yet he has to say, Choose you today whom you will worship. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Only Christ who crushed the head of the ancient serpent, Satan, is able to protect us from our great adversary, ourselves. And this is why we go through all the trouble to understand God in history. Because as God, through his representative, delivered his people in the past, in a greater way, he is delivering his people through Christ today. This is why we labor to understand the work of God in the past. All these Old Testament stories all these recounts of victory serve to us as a reminder that God always 
delivers his people. As God calls to mind his faithfulness in the past, he also reassures his people that he will be faithful in the future. And how does Habakkuk respond to all these recounts of God's victory on behalf of his people? Well, look at verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Habakkuk responds with realism. Habakkuk doesn't have a skewed vision of God's judgment. A visceral response to the fear of impending judgment coming from the hand of the Chaldeans. His body trembles, his lips quiver. He feels as though his bones are rotten. He knows the Chaldeans would be instruments in the hands of the Lord to deliver judgment. To Israel, God's wrath on his people. But Habakkuk knew God. That makes all the difference. He knew of his past faithfulness, so he draws his hope from what he knows about God. Habakkuk knew that in the midst of wrath, God would remember mercy. So he finishes his this section saying, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. You know what Habakkuk is looking forward to here? Habakkuk is looking forward to a resurrection. He knew that death would come in the form of a people a violent and wicked people conquering the people of God. He, he knew that for the people of Israel, exile would be like death. But he knew that God's judgment would come on those who judge his people. And when the wicked is judged, those who believe in God live. He knew the judgment of the Chaldeans would come, but God would eventually judge the Chaldeans. And through judgment, God's people would experience salvation. And friends, this message, message of salvation through judgment ultimately points us to Christ's death and resurrection. It is on the cross of Christ that we see the wrath and mercy of God meeting. It is on the cross of Christ that we see the judgment poured out on the innocent. It is on the cross of Christ that we see the fullness of God's wrath poured out. Friends, the wrath that should be on you and on me, the judgment that we deserve, the judgment that we've earned because of the sin that we're born with and that we choose daily. 
Christ died for sin and not the sin of his own. The judgment of God that he endured was your judgment and my judgment. Christ did not deserve to die. He died out of love. He did not deserve to be judged. He was judged so that you and I could experience mercy. In his sacrifice, he drank the cup. He said it is finished and he commends his spirit to the Father. And the Father accepts the sacrifice. Unlike the sacrifices of the old covenants that had to be done over and over again, Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient. The wrath of God is satisfied. Nothing is left. And all who believe in him experience nothing but mercy. We know that the sacrifice was accepted because Jesus was raised from the dead. And that's what we celebrate today, his resurrection. So, friends, if we're going to live and if we're going to live for Christ, we must live with the hope of resurrection in our hearts, knowing that, yes, we deserve the judgment of God, but because Jesus died and was raised, the judgment does not rest on us. It has already rested on Christ, so Christ will not give it to us again. There's no double jeopardy in heaven. It is done. It is finished. We experience a new life. We experience mercy and there's no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus i never finished polycarp's story after standing by his faith in christ the guards went on to light up the fire the bystanders say that the fire never burned him like fire burns flesh. Instead, it enveloped him as the fire in an oven. Polycarp, however, was ultimately killed, not by fire, but by being pierced by a dagger. Yet, he never recanted his testimony. Instead, he finished his life saying this, I bless thee, for thou hast granted me this day an hour that I might receive a portion amongst the number of martyrs in the cup of thy Christ unto the resurrection of eternal life. What produces such faith, boldness, confidence? How can we live without fear? How can we live not fearing death, the future? Friends, we must have the hope of the resurrection of eternal life in our hearts. We must die with Christ and be raised with him to a new life and know that one day we will see him face to face. So whether we live to be 89 or 100 or whether we die as our Lord Jesus Christ died at 33, we must say for, for me 
To live is Christ, and to die is gain. May this be your prayer today. May this be the faith that lives in your heart today. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you because Jesus died on our behalf, according to scriptures, for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, thank you that he was raised, and along with him, all who believe in him are raised to new life. Lord, we believe. Help us today in our unbelief. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.